0: I want to apologize for the uh, awkward delay after the video announcements of our two Sunday school classes. That was my fault. That was not Brother Dave's fault. Um, We forewent the normal walk-in prelude song so that you could see those announcements with regard to the two options next Sunday. And if any of you missed that, please know that Pastor Sam will be teaching on 1 Corinthians in the Midwest Center classroom, and Pastor Mark will begin the study on... A Christian view of labor, and they will be meeting in the old sanctuary, so I apologize for that uh, just simply forgot to tell my son in law Justin so that he would come up here and that he did the right thing on his own. Well, uh, we have just heard in our reading Isaiah chapter five and John chapter fifteen and as has been said now repeatedly we come this morning to the seventh and the last I am pronouncement of our Savior recorded in the Gospel of John keep in mind that this one like the one we heard last Lord's Day morning was spoken during our Savior's final discourse you could perhaps call it a farewell message to his disciples because on the very evening that he said he was the true vine he was betrayed by Judas and the horrible arrest and crucifixion began to unfold we have already considered the Lord saying I am the bread of life I am the light of the world I am the door of the sheep I am the good shepherd I am the resurrection and the life I am the way the truth and the life. And now, seventhly, we find Jesus saying in verse 1 of our 15th chapter, I am the true vine. All of these sayings of our Savior are founded upon and rooted in his divine nature and his eternality. The very first sermon in this series brought by Pastor Sam reminded us of the words of Jesus before the unbelieving Jews when he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And we saw that it is the eternal, divine Son of God who was addressing the Jews. And because he is God, and because he is eternal, he is able to do this wonderful saving work, too wonderful to be described with one metaphor. It isn't enough for Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life. He is, but he's far more than that. He's also the light of the world and the door to the sheep and the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life and the way and the truth and the life. And today, it's as if he says, there's one more beautiful feature to my saving work in my people. And I shall describe it in terms of the relationship of a vine to its branches. But please notice with me that in verse 1, Jesus didn't merely say, I am the vine. He said, I am the true vine. And that's why I had Derek read for us Isaiah chapter 5. Because there you hear God the Father lamenting what happened to the original vine. He brought about a nation called Israel for the purpose of declaring his glory in the world. But that nation, through unbelief and disobedience, produced nothing but wild grapes. And God had to judge the vine, the vine failed. But it failed with the knowledge of God all along, preparing the true vine. And so when Jesus utters these words, it is as if he's saying, though the first Israel failed, I am the second Israel. I am the true vine so as we approach this last i am saying i want to remind you of the context and it is very similar to the context that jonathan reminded us of last lord's day morning perhaps you remember him saying that jesus didn't simply say i am the way the truth and the life without having a very specific purpose in mind and that purpose was to comfort and to encourage and to console his troubled disciples they were very troubled three of them in particular had problems that we all share again that was made clear to us the problem of faith and the problem of fear and the problem of perception but don't think that suddenly all of the disciples are at ease and now they're feeling completely good and they're no longer worried and they're no longer troubled no they're still troubled and Jesus needs to say more to them by way of comforting and encouraging them we saw last week in chapter 14 verse 1 him saying to them let not your hearts be troubled but will you notice also verse 18 of chapter 14 he has to say to them I will not leave you as orphans I know that's what you're fearful of but I'm not going to do that Notice again verse 27 of chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Notice chapter 16 and verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And so he was preparing his disciples for the future and for the strength they would need to resist the temptation to apostatize. And then notice, please, verse 6 of chapter 16. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And finally, notice verse 22 of the same chapter. So also you have sorrow now. So you see, Jesus is still bringing words of comfort and consolation to his disciples, even even as he was in the passage we considered together last Lord's Day morning. Seemingly, at least from the perspective of the disciples, everyone had turned against Christ and his disciples. They knew that earlier, perhaps several months before, Jesus said this to them, He said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was working on the disciples. Now he tells them, I'm going away. And they are very troubled it looked to them like the whole religious establishment had turned against them, and they felt sure that the nation itself had rejected them, and it's as if Jesus says to them, No. No. The nation hasn't rejected you nearly so much as God has rejected Israel. And now you need to know my disciples that I I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. Not only am I the second and true Adam, the second and true Aaron, the second and true Moses, the second and true Joshua, the second and true David, the second and true temple. I am the second and true vine. And he told them that for their comfort. So as we look at this passage this morning, chapter 15, what I simply want to do is set before you six observations. The, The narrative is like a seamless piece of fabric. And I think it's most helpful for me to take you to the passage as a whole and extract from it these principles for your edification. And the first thing I want to say to you that we're taught in this passage is that every true disciple is joined to Jesus Christ through faith. Now let me just expand on that for a moment. Every true disciple or believer upon the Lord Jesus Christ is joined to Him, is united to Him by faith. And this union that comes into existence through believers trusting in Christ and being joined to Him is a union that is intimate, mystical, and yet vital. You could call it an organic Union. It's a union which causes the one that is joined to the other to find strength and life from it. I heard a story this week of a, of a man who said actually to a friend of mine who was in the country of Holland to preach... And he knew he was going to be preaching on, I think, John 15. And he said to my friend, Are you going to preach about the life out of Christ? And he says, No, no. I'm going to be preaching on the life that is found in Christ. And the man said, No, you misunderstand me. Are you going to preach to us about the life out of Christ? And again, my friend said, No, I'm going to preach about life in Christ. And on the third question, which was just a repeat of the former two, our friend, Sinclair Ferguson, said, I see what you have in mind. Yes. That is, in fact, what I'm going to preach. I am going to open up the meaning of Jesus' words when he said that branches or believers are to be so organically and intimately and mysteriously joined to Christ that they draw life and sustenance out of him. He is the source of the life. It is true that we are in Christ. And that's one of Paul's favorite expressions, isn't it, for the position of the Christian. Not only in terms of our our position uh, from God's perspective, but in reality, the Holy Spirit has so worked in our lives, if we are true believers, that we have been joined to him in a way that is described as in Christ. In fact, one of the prepositions actually ought to be translated into Christ. We are joined into Christ. And so what am I saying to you, dear people? I'm saying the first observation that has to be derived from this passage is that every true Christian, every true disciple, is joined to Jesus Christ by faith in a way that is intimate, mystical, and vital. In a way that is organic. What better time for me to just briefly say that when a true believer or disciple comes to Jesus to trust in him, he's trusting in him for forgiveness of sins. He's trusting in him for a perfect atonement to pay for his sins. He's trusting in him for the provision of a perfect righteousness to cover him so that in the presence of God's holy justice, he looks and sees perfection because we are in Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who, knowing something of their horrible sinfulness and the certainty of their judgment to come and knowing something of the distaste and the disgust for sin which doesn't deliver what it promises, flees to Jesus for a covering, flees to Jesus for an atonement and embraces him by faith. So that's the first observation Every true disciple is joined to Jesus Christ through faith. And that union is intimate, mystical, and vital. Secondly, let me make this statement. This union of believers to Jesus Christ, this intimate, mystical, vital union, causes the believer to increasingly bear fruit. Fruit that abides. So what am I saying? I'm saying that this union to Jesus causes the believer to bear fruit and fruit that abides. Notice with me verses 4 and 5. And by the way, As you read this whole passage, which Derek read for us, there are actually only two commands. If I were to um, offer you a, a large financial reward for discovering which are the only two commands, or if I were to threaten you with death if you couldn't find them, I have no doubt that most of you could read through the passage and rather quickly say, well, that's not a command. That's just a statement. I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine wrestler. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Those are just all indicatives. They're just all indicating something. I haven't heard a command yet. And then suddenly you come to verse 4 and you reach the first commandment, the first imperative. And it is this. Abide in me and I in you. And the second imperative is found in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So not only are we to abide in Christ, but we are to abide in his love. And in a few minutes, I'm going to, I hope, helpfully enable you to see that they're one and the same thing. And before the passage is over, there is one more commandment. It's found in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Those are the only three commandments. Those are the only three imperatives in this whole passage. But the point I'm making is that union with Jesus Christ causes the believer to increasingly, that's an important word, increasingly bear fruit that abides. Now why did I put it that way, increasingly bear fruit that abides? Because that's what the passage teaches The passage doesn't just speak about us bearing fruit. It speaks about us bearing more fruit. And then a little later, it speaks about us bearing much fruit. And finally, it expresses us bearing fruit that abides. Notice those words. You see, bearing fruit is in verse 2, the second part of it. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away And every branch that does bear fruit. But notice more fruit in the latter part of the same verse. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So what's the deal? Do Christians bear fruit or do they bear more fruit? They bear fruit and he prunes them so that they bear more fruit. That's the deal. And then when you come down to... Verse 5, you notice that our fruit is described as much fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him. It is he that bears much fruit. And finally, when you come to verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So I am describing, because Jesus is so describing, the true believer as a person who is ever increasingly bearing fruit that abides. Now, what is the fruit? Isn't that a great question? Isn't that one of the most important questions? If we preach this whole sermon and and establish the fact that true Christians bear fruit, but we don't know what fruit-bearing means or what it looks like, then we may go away unhelped. Well, it means many things. It just generally speaking, it means that we manifest lives that are completely changed and renewed by his grace. It's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul would describe in Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's part of fruit bearing. That's a very general way of describing it. It's life transformation. Or we could go to Ephesians 5, verses 22 and following and speak of the fruit of the Spirit because wherever the Spirit of God comes, He produces fruit, love, joy, peace, and so forth. That is part of what fruit bearing is. But in our text, the fruit that Jesus refers to specifically is obedience you see that in verse 7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you Notice verse 9 the second sentence in it is that second command abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love so part of the fruit of abiding in Christ is a cheerful, heart-rooted desire to obey the will of God. To obey Him. Obedience is one of the primary fruits of abiding in Christ. That's enough, isn't it, to cause our consciences to reflect for a moment? and ask the question is my life a life of fruit bearing in that regard and in the context we find that this obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ also bears the fruit if you want you can think of it as a grandchild fruit it bears the fruit of answered prayer because again in verse 7 it says if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So, in one sense, an effectual prayer life is part of the fruit of abiding in Christ. That's enough to make our consciences pause for a moment, isn't it? Does your prayer life give evidence of fruit-bearing? And one of the beautiful things, of course, is that as we abide in his word, our minds and our hearts are so formulated that we find ourselves asking for those things which most redound to the glory of God. And so we're not so surprised that he's answering our prayers because our heart is becoming more and more in tune with his heart because we are abiding in his word. So... Fruit-bearing means many things, some in a very general way, and others in a very specific way. And later, I'm going to focus on one more evidence of fruit-bearing, and it will be the actual possession of joy in our lives. But I want to reserve that for just a little bit later. So those are two uh, observations. Number three, increasingly bearing fruit or I could say bearing fruit in an increasing way that lasts, is the result of God's gracious pruning, cutting back in our lives. That's the third observation. We can't escape it. It's found in verse 2. He says, Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I will say something about that in my sixth and final observation, but not yet. But as soon as he makes that negative statement, notice what he follows up with. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So, on two kinds of branches, branches that bear fruit and branches that don't bear fruit. And I'm suggesting to us this morning that every true believer is united to Christ by faith. Every true believer, because he is united to Christ by faith, bears fruit. And now I'm saying every true believer who bears fruit, by the grace of God, begins to bear more fruit because he comes under the tender, gracious, pruning work of God. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not bear fruit you knew that. But let me put it this way there is no such thing as a fruit bearing Christian who is not pruned by God the Father. Who's the pruner? The vine dresser. Who's the vine dresser? Jesus made it very clear in verse 1 I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser, or some translations use the old English word, the husbandman, or the gardener, or the farmer. Now, dear people, I want to say this to you by way of encouragement this morning and by way of being realistic about the Christian life. I want to remind you that every Christian experiences pruning from God. Let me put it this way. Every Christian experiences pruning from God. Could I say it one more time a little differently? every christian experiences pruning from god said well you didn't say it any differently i know i'm trying to make a point there is no such thing as a christian who does not experience the gracious but sometimes painful pruning of God the Father and he does this for our good it's very clear from the text he does it so that we will bear more fruit and as we bear more fruit we bring more glory to him and I want to encourage you secondly by reminding you that not all pruning is the result of sin now I'm not going to uh, let you think that none of it is the result of sin Hebrews chapter 12 is very clear That sometimes we don't resist sin unto the loss of blood. And sometimes God has to deal with us as a father and discipline us. And yes, sin is met with pruning. But the mistake would be to conclude that all pruning is the result of sin. It isn't. Perhaps most pruning is not the result of sin. It's a desire on the part of God to draw us closer to himself, to wean us from things which in and of themselves are not sinful, but distracting and diverting. Now, let's go back to the analogy, okay? You can, you can envision um, a man who works in a vineyard whose job it is to prune. There are are often two prunings one that's very radical in the fall where you practically cut the vine back to nothing and it looks like you killed it and the other is the, in the spring when the farmer comes along and he looks at the branches and, and he sees in different places branches that uh, they're not going to bear fruit. They're just trundles. They just go out and they're, what they're doing is they're sapping up the energy. And so he cuts, he cuts them all off because he knows they're not going to bear fruit. And even if they did, taking off some of them will help the others have more energy from this organic union to the vine so that it will bear more fruit this is what God does in our lives and when he does it instead of chafing we need to say thank you Lord I know that I need this I know that I am prone to be distracted I am prone to be diverted, and I don't want to be God. Take away even those things which in and of themselves are not sinful, but they're diversionary in my life. Please take them away. You all have heard of the wonderful missionary Amy Carmichael who went to India, a godly, wise woman, and in her journal somewhere she wrote this as the heading of a prayer concern. Listen, rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. How about that for a subject of prayer? Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. And then this is what she says. And she goes to this analogy of a vine dresser pruning. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the ground the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. That would be the knife, the pruning knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, let's say vine dresser, with a tried and trusted vine dresser, there's not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have be lost to keep and gain to lose. And so she prays, rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. So I'm quite sure that if we walked through a vineyard at the right time of the year and saw all the stuff on the ground that the vine dresser had trimmed off and saw what she calls the bleeding stem, we'd have said, That is way, way, way too radical. You cannot but have done harm to the plant. And the vine dresser says, Wait, wait until the fruit comes. This is what God does in our lives, dear brothers and sisters. This was pictured by C.S. Lewis in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And some of you may remember where Eustace uh, had gone into a cave and became... Dragon like and wanted to get rid of all these oily scales And he tried on his own to get rid of them and every time he got rid of them They seemed to be right back just as bad as they were before he wanted to go into this crystal clear Well this pool to have his leg healed and after the third or fourth attempt the lion Aslan said You will have to let me undress you I was afraid of his claws said Eustace I can tell you, but I was pretty much desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off that's how we should feel when God is pruning us he's taking away things that are diverting that are distracting to us we used to sing from time to time and we ought to sing it again that good old hymn by John Newton which is not found in most hymn books including the Trinity and many of you will know the moment I began to quote it what Newton learned he said I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, and might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way The Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. Dear brothers and sisters, we all know to some extent what it is to have the loving pruning work of our Father in our lives. And some in this congregation have recently experienced it to the ultimate. What is He doing? He's showing His love for you. He's endearing you to Himself. And He is in the process of making you more fruitful. In the fourth place, the bearing of increasing and abiding fruit is the ultimate evidence of discipleship. That's a conclusion we have to draw. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. Let me go back to the last part of verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay, a fruitful prayer life. By this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. Now listen, look, look closely. Bear much fruit and so prove. Prove, that's a key word. Prove, demonstrate, give evidence of, and so prove to be my disciples. Not only is every Christian one who experiences the pruning work of God so as to cause him or her to bear more fruit. The experience of pruning and increased fruit is the evidence of true grace. So maybe some of you are asking the question, I fear more for those of you who aren't asking the question, I wonder if I'm really a true Christian. I wonder if I really know God. Here's how to tell. According to Jesus, fruit bearing is the evidence of true discipleship. Well, by implication, what is non fruit bearing then? Well, it's the evidence of not being a true disciple. And fifthly, our duty is to do two things. I think if I gave you a quiz, most of you could answer it. There were only two commands, or well, actually, three. But the first two are to abide in him, to abide in him, and to abide in his love. That's interesting. Our duty is to abide in Jesus and his love. Look at that second imperative there in verse 8, or verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, I want to quickly say to you, dear brothers and sisters, that to abide in Jesus and his love is to abide obediently in his words. We've already seen that. And commandments. It is to abide obediently, lovingly, cheerfully in his words and commandments. Now, he is the ultimate example and pattern of this. Notice verse 7 and verse 10. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then go please to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I really shouldn't read the second part of... uh, I shouldn't read verse 10 without reading verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. There's the pattern. The pattern is the love of God for his son. Now he says, abide in my love. The father loved me and I abided in his love, said Jesus, because I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I abode in his love through obedience to his will and now jesus says in the same manner i want you to abide in my love and verse 10 says if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love now i don't know about you but that creates kind of a theological tension you are you telling me pastor ted that we have some bearing on The love of God for us that is related somehow to obedience? Because what I've been hearing from this pulpit is that there is nothing you can do to sin yourself out of the love of God. You can't make God love you more, and you can't make God love you less. And I want to quickly say that those statements made with the right qualifications are absolutely true in terms of God's divine love set upon you from all eternity expressed in the sending of his son and the Holy Spirit into your life and bringing you to himself and Putting you in the vine so that when he looks upon you, he really sees his son. In those terms, you cannot increase the love of God for you. And you cannot decrease the love of God. But in terms of our dynamic relationship with him, and that's why I say there's some mystery here. There is some mystery in this text. I mean, the the mystery was in chapter 14 as well. Look at verse 20 of chapter 14. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, wow, and I in you. Now, if you don't see any mystery there, something's seriously wrong. What is this mystical relationship? We cannot fully Explain it or comprehend it, but it is real. And the mystery that I'm pointing you to now is this: that in terms of our dynamic relationship and walk with the Savior, we can displease Him by disobedience. You think Jesus feels neutral about disobedience? He just says, "Well, I I I don't have any feelings about that because He's in my Son, or He's in me. No." There is a sense in which out of loving obedience, and I underscore that word, dear brothers and sisters, out of loving obedience, obedience rooted in love. If your obedience to God is not rooted in love, it's legalism. If your efforts to <clears throat> excuse me please God are rooted in your behavior primarily and not in what Jesus did for you, it's Phariseeism. But if you hear God say, I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you out of the bondage of Egypt and then proceeds to tell you what his will for how you live is, you will find redemption and the reciprocal love for God because of redeeming you, to be the grand motive of your obedience. Go back again, please, to verse fifteen of chapter fourteen. To, let me just nail that. Let me bend that nail over. Fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is the motive for obedience? It is love. But the irony and the beauty and the mystery in a sense of verse 10 is this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, what is the deal? Do we love him first and then obey him out of that love? Or do we keep his commandments and get that love? It's actually both. We love Him because He first loved us. And He wrote His law on our hearts. And out of love to God for His grace in our lives, we desire to obey Him. And as we obey Him out of love, guess what? We abide in His love. That's what the text says. And furthermore, the text says that that's how we get joy. Remember I told you I wanted to come back to the, to the fruit of joy? So what are you talking about? I want you to notice again verse 11. fifteen eleven. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full now think about that for a while what does that mean do you know what that means i didn't know what it meant i think i know what it means Say, so, uh, what are you talking about well let me let me ask you the question that sinclair ferguson has asked he says what does he mean does he mean a Jesus speaking, that you, my disciples, may be the source of joy to me. Is that what he means? That that my joy may be in you. You're the source of my joy. Like you might say to somebody, my joy is in you. You are my joy. Don't we say that to people? My joy outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is in my wife, my children, and my grandchildren, especially, and in you. But you won't be surprised to hear me say that I find great joy in my grandchildren. I used to have two grandsons. I only have one. But as Rebecca said, he just spent the best month of his life In heaven but you think that doesn't make me look on Judah in a new and fresh way and find delight in him especially when Friday night I'm at the Corson's house sitting in a chair and he crawls over to me and he wants me to hold his hands and he stands up with his wobbly legs and I say can you say Papa and he says Papa I said, can you say, Papa, and he says, Papa, are you all hearing this? I'm saying to the people in the house, do you listen to this? Diane, listen. Can you say, Papa, Papa, four times? Would you be surprised to hear me say, I find great joy in Judah and in Jersey and in Eliza? Of course not. Is that what Jesus means? that my joy may be in you? Maybe. But let me tell you what else it may well mean. It may well mean, as Ferguson goes on to ask, or does he mean when he says that my joy may be in you, that we are sharers in his joy? Jesus said, my joy is to do the will of the Father. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, now pouring out the Holy Spirit, advancing his own kingdom, creating the new Israel, the, the Israel that is now connected to the vine, that now fulfills the purpose that God originally had. The kingdom advances. Saints are being born. Christ takes great delight great joy in the advancement of the kingdom and when we become Christians and are joined to him so intimately and so organically and so mystically it could well be and I think it is in part our sharing in his joy If you don't share in the joy of the Savior, I'm just gonna tell you straight up. I'm pretty sure you're not a Christian You're not a Christian But if the in the deepest recesses of your soul the deepest joy that comes to you is in knowing Christ and in seeing him exalted and seeing his gospel triumph I'm gonna say something else straight up to you I'm pretty sure you are a Christian So which is it? Probably both. Probably both. And that is part of the fruit of being a genuine Christian who was pruned by the Father. And now I have to conclude with this. And I save the worst to last. Usually we save the best to last. I didn't want to start with this because I didn't think it would make as much sense if I started with it until you first understood about the vital relationship between a true disciple and his Savior, that intimate union brought about by faith which results in loving pruning from the Father and increased fruit-bearing in one's life. But now notice back to verse 2. It's really scary. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, the the most difficult words in that verse are two. Every branch of mine. Of mine. These branches belong to Jesus? Are they actually attached to Jesus? Yes. In a manner of sorts, yes. They're taken away? Yes. Why? Because they don't bear fruit? What happens to them when they're taken away? Look at verse 8. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I wish I had at least a half hour just to open up what the Bible teaches about professed Christians, not true Christians, not those who are genuinely born again and converted, but profess Christians who have an external, outward attachment to Jesus, but who are not organically united to him by faith and therefore don't produce fruit, but who eventually fall away on their own and will eventually be cast into hell. That's what I would like to open up. I would open it up by turning you to Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, where we actually have a reference to non-fruit-bearing plants being... Gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. I could take you to so many passages. But I have to distill the whole point I'm making theologically by saying this. A true Christian will never fall from grace because the grace that God has saved in the first place will enable him to persevere. But there are spurious or false Christians who are outwardly attached to Jesus but not inwardly by genuine faith, by a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. They do not bear fruit and eventually they will prove to be apostates They will fall away. Or, even if they don't fall away in this life, they will go to the very judgment day and be utterly shocked that they were not Christians. As Jesus refers to them in Matthew 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do these three things in your name? And he says, yeah, yeah, you did. Mm-hmm. But I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We had no real vital, intimate, mystical, loving union with each other. You never re- derived real sustenance and strength from me. That's why you didn't bear any fruit under righteousness. And then he will say the worst words that any human being could ever possibly hear, and they will be uttered someday. And some of you, I fear will hear these words. Listen to me. Three words. Depart from me. And they're followed by three more horrible words. Four more words. I never knew you. That's what this passage is about. It's about pers- the perseverance of the saints. Now, will true Christians persevere? Yes. But must they persevere? Yes. Is it must or will it's both they will and they must they must and they will So what we got to do is figure out Does my life give evidence of bearing fruit Especially the fruit of obedience. I now understand that obeying God's law is not something I do in order to obtain justification I don't do it to find his forgiving favor. I do it because I have experienced his forgiving favor, and he wrote it on my heart, and I love to do his will as it is revealed in the Scripture. So that's what I leave you with, dear people. I want most all of you to be encouraged, and I'm just here to tell you that if you're trusting in Christ and he's your only hope, uh, you're the branch, he's the vine, you're, you're bearing fruit. You're going to keep bearing fruit. He may have to prune you some more. He will prune you some more. And you're going to bear fruit, and it will reflect in your obedience to his word and your answers to your prayer and the joy you take in knowing him and being a part of his enterprise. Jonathan is having a discussion with someone on Facebook about whether or not all Christians should be involved in the Great Commission in one way or another. Please hear those words carefully, in one way or another, according to our gifts and callings. And we believe all five of your pastors the answer is yes. What? A Christian who belongs to the kingdom and doesn't care about its advancement and doesn't want to find some way to help get the gospel to the four corners of the earth and to the rest of Davis County? What? I can't conceive of it but the fact is God is giving to Heritage Baptist Church an increasing joy in participating that enterprise you know why because it's the greatest enterprise it's the only ultimate enterprise the glory of our Savior and the advancement of his kingdom you figure out whether or not you are in the vine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage. Lord Jesus, thank you for uttering these words. Thousands of years have gone by and they still are so helpful to us. We do thank you, heavenly Father, that you prune your true branches so that they will bear more fruit. Help us to embrace those times and to see the good end that you yourself have in mind. Lord, be gracious to any here today who who have heard this and who have had to say to themselves, I don't think I'm in the vine. I don't think I have that loving attachment. Oh, God, may they call upon your name right now in the quietness of their own hearts and cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.